When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm very glad you're with us. I'm Steve Beitler. My guest today has written a courageous book that questions deeply held beliefs about people and the worlds we live in. In May, Echo, an imprint of HarperCollins, published The Mind in the Moon, My Brother's Story, The Science of Our Brains, and the Search for Our Psyches by Daniel Bergner. Daniel, thanks for being here today. Thanks, Steve. It's really good to be talking with you. Thank you. Daniel is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine. The Mind and the Moon is his sixth nonfiction book. His work has appeared in The Atlantic, Harper's, Mother Jones, and The New York Times Book Review, among others. When Daniel's younger brother, Bob, was diagnosed as bipolar and put on a locked ward in the 1980s, psychiatry seemed on the brink of a revolution in therapy new chemical solutions to disorders that now were understood as fundamentally neurochemical. Daniel and Bob's parents were told that Bob was at high risk for suicide and that his disorder would be lifelong. Bob's heavy doses of psychiatric medications brought powerful side effects, but only transient relief. The story of Bob's triumph is one of three personal stories that the book tells. We get to know Carolyn, who lives with the hallucinations of psychosis, and David, an attorney who is engulfed by anxiety and depression. The Mind and the Moon tells their stories as compelling examples within its discussion of the history of psychiatry and the growth of psychopharmacology. The book describes significant limitations and profound downsides of medications that tens of millions of Americans consume. It raises fundamental questions about how little we understand when it comes to how minds function and malfunction. The book is a humane exploration of difficult questions of selfhood and identity. Daniel, there's a lot to explore, so let's start at the beginning. How did you come to write The Mind and the Moon? So, Steve, I think it begins really with my brother's experience. When we were in our early 20s, he was put on a locked ward, as you noted, and diagnosed as severely bipolar. Our terrified parents and Bob himself were told that if he didn't adhere to his medications, he might well take his own life. Um, He was an aspiring musician and dancer and couldn't really pursue those arts with the side effects of the medication, which caused tremors, which left him feeling, as he put it, like he had a blanket on his brain. And so after a few years, against psychiatric advice, he went off the medications and, you know, some some real 
setbacks occurred at first, but ultimately he's led a really triumphant, meaningful, flourishing life now for about three decades. And that raised all kinds of questions for us. So we together, Bob and I, have lived with those questions for a long, long time. And finally, it seemed the right time to both tell his story, so the book is partly a memoir, and then for me to immerse myself in what science has and has not been able to tell us about the way our minds work and the way we might reach mental health. So given that, and we will definitely get back to more on Bob's story in a moment, but is there a core idea or takeaway that every reader of your book should come away with? Well, I'm always a little wary of core ideas and takeaways because the novelistic feel of what I do And it is straight journalism. I mean, there's no playing with the facts. But that novelistic feel that you want to keep turning pages just to find out what happens to these three key people is very, very, very important to me. That's a huge part of what I do as a writer. But the answer is yes. What I was told and what the scientific thread of the book tells readers in, I hope, a really engaging way is that our efforts to medicate our way to mental health have really not progressed in at least half a century. I was told this by neuroscientists, neuroscientists, by people who've devoted their careers to this kind of research and who are still fully engaged in it, but they were telling me this over and over again. And so the question became sort of given this wall that we've effectively run into, how can we reimagine our minds, think again about ourselves, and think in new ways about mental health. So that's a good segue to uh, a basic question, really. How would you describe the biological model of psychiatry uh, in terms of what it posits and any weak points or blind spots? Right. So, so much to say here, but let's flash back to the early 80s when my brother was diagnosed. So that was a key point in the history of psychiatry. Uh, Two forces, for simplicity's sake here, were converging. One, the profession of psychiatry really wanted to claim a objective, scientific, medical space for itself. Meanwhile, the pharmaceutical industry had come up with over the preceding couple of decades somewhat effective drugs to address a range of conditions from psychosis or seeing other realities, experiencing other realities, to the more common conditions, depression, anxiety. But these drugs, we can talk about them in more detail later, of course, came with pretty significant side effects, sometimes devastating side effects, and also were far from universally effective. But nevertheless, these two forces converge, and psychiatry claims that it's seeing and rightly seeing our minds as a biological entity that can be treated medically. So one thing that all listeners almost are probably familiar with is this idea of chemical imbalance and that We can treat the mind just as 
we treat diabetes. We give insulin to balance out the diabetic. We'll give various chemicals, uh, serotonin boosters, dopamine uh, antagonists, depending on the condition. And by addressing these neurotransmitter chemicals, we will balance out the brain and cure the brain's ills. Well, uh, very few people with expertise would give us that narrative now. And yet, I think many people outside the profession and many even everyday practitioners of it still cling to that idea, which again, top neuroscientists would really call into question. So I want to start with uh, an early example and then get to your case studies. Could you uh, talk briefly about Thorazine and its significance in the history of psychiatry? Right. So Thorazine has a kind of wild history. Uh, It was discovered as an antipsychotic by happenstance uh, it started out as a fabric dye, a close cousin of it started as a fabric dye in the Victorian era. Uh, but in the 50s, it's discovered that for those people who are sometimes, and underlying, underlying sometimes here, because psychotic conditions aren't generally constants. People come in and out of those alternate realities. In any case, for people experiencing that, uh, Thorazine, for some, uh, lessens the intensity of those visions or voices. Um, And it also has a very strong subduing effect. So whatever it's doing to the voice and visions, it's also sort of calming you right down. It's a very, very powerful drug. So it comes along in the 50s, it allows for a great deal of hope. It seems at first a panacea for a condition that hasn't been treatable at all. So much so that move forward to the early 60s and largely because of Thorazine's effect, President Kennedy announces that not only will American science take us to the moon, but American science is going to provide us with a, he calls it, Uh, access to the remote reaches of the mind and access to cures, chemical cures for our psychiatric ills. It's a tremendously optimistic moment and set of speeches that he gives around this. It's why I call the book The Mind and the Moon, because in the end, of course, we got to the moon quite readily. I think the mind still eludes us. So with that background, uh, could you uh, introduce us to Bob, Carolyn, and David in a little bit more detail? Sure. So, you know, my brother, uh, as I said, ambitious young artist, um, did experience a break with reality. Uh, he would deeply question the diagnosis to this day, but there's no question, we have the hospital records, a kind of break with our shared reality, um, told he might take his own life if he didn't adhere to serious medications, went off, and not to give the whole story away, but does wind up again on another psychiatric ward, 
is homeless for a while. These were this was a very dramatic and sometimes dark journey, but it leads to this really triumphant, affirming place and to all these questions the book asks. Caroline, uh, just a spectacular person I'm so grateful to have met and spent much of the last few years with, but uh, she uh, was experiencing from early childhood the hallucinations, the voices of psychosis, um, voices telling her to harm herself, often to harm others, voices of deep fear. So all the things we hear about that make us really, to say concerned is an understatement, often we're in, as a society, kind of in terror of such people. Uh, she was heavily medicated with an array of antipsychotic drugs. They did very little for her, except make her gain tremendous amounts of weight, make her body really feel out of control. I mean, the tremors is the least of it. Your body's sometimes almost quaking as a side effect. So really, it was almost unbearable. And she finds this route to... Um, without medication, rethink, recast her voices. It's not easy at all, but it leads her to reimagine the way we think about some of the most significant psychiatric conditions that we know of. And it really led me to rethink our minds, rethink who we are. I mean, being around Caroline was a truly rearranging journey for me. And then lastly, David, who's a very accomplished civil rights lawyer, he's argued in front of the Supreme Court, the height of a litigator's life, um, is beset by a much more common set of conditions by uh, depression and anxiety, uh, goes on medication against a therapist's advice, then tries to wean himself off and runs into some of the problems that are only recently gaining attention. Drug companies don't like to talk about this. And the problems are that withdrawal symptoms become significant for a certain percentage of people who are on these drugs, SSRIs, anti-anxiety medications, that we're told are relatively benign, but turns out aren't so much so. So these are three people whose stories ask us to rethink in profound ways. I want to uh, change gears a little bit with my next question. Uh, given your description of the effects of these medications, um, are there parallels that you see between how psychiatric treatments have been portrayed and how opioids have been presented and represented to clinicians and patients? Right. So the quick answer is yes, but I do want to be careful. I'm not anti-psychiatry. And I also want to emphasize, I'm not here to preach to people who are on psychiatric medications and for whom those medications really have helped. I'm not here to preach, free yourself, liberate yourself from psychotropic medication. That would be arrogant of me, 
ridiculously romantic of me and absolutely misplaced on my part. That said, sure, if you think about the way opioids were marketed, if you think about the way the pain narrative was told, as if it was perhaps far more ubiquitous and needed far more treatment, medical pill treatment, than it actually did. If you read about a company like McKinsey's advice to the pharmaceutical industry about how to generate more uh, market interest and more customers for those pain-killing drugs, sure, you can easily draw a line to the pharmaceuticals, uh, pharmaceutical industries. Uh, marketing of psychotropic medications. And I'll give you just two quick examples. So on the more significant and strong side effect side, uh, the pharmaceutical industry has really expanded uh, the number of young people who are diagnosed as bipolar. I mean, this is easily tracked. There's a paper trail on this and a paper trail of payments to really prominent, influential psychiatrists on that. Equally, somewhat comically and entertainingly, I suppose, uh, I write about the various ways the pharmaceutical companies have marketed antidepressants, uh, and that ranges all the way to hiring Salvador Dali to create elaborate (laughs) exhibits at psychiatry conferences showing how magical, you know, in almost surreal way uh, that SSRIs would work upon a depressed psyche. So yeah, no end to the investment and invention that the industry has employed in marketing its drugs. How would you define neurodiversity and why is it significant? And sort of as a follow-on, are the books, uh, case studies, examples of this? So now you're asking a really complicated question. I would say yes. And the only reason I'm being careful is, again, I think there's the possibility of romanticizing states that can be really, really painful and that can cause lots of suffering to the person. And as I mentioned, I know well the terror and suffering that families can feel. But I would say there's a case to be made for widening the way we see the human mind. So, You know, the book opens with this scene of my brother having choreographed a dance to the vibrations of a ferry boat. So he heard the vibrations rising up from the ferry boat's bowels combined with the water slapping against the bow of the ferry boat, almost as a Gregorian chant. And so he would dance on the ferry decks. Now, you could say, well... That's the definition of crazy. Or you could say, no, that's the definition of site-specific art. He was really hearing something that most people weren't going to hear, but that once he was dancing that way, the rest of us could really hear. And you can imagine that Gregorian choir coming out of that engine. 
And so something magical was coming out of this difference. And isn't that what art so often is? I could say the same about Caroline. There are moments that are almost too complex to describe here where she's able to interpret other people's dire situations in a way that's really creative. And it's because she can use her own experience in a way that just makes her insights unique. I want to step back just briefly and ask about um, where we go from here in one sense. Are there research directions that you have uncovered and looked into in psychiatric medicine that scientists are pursuing, that are looking promising, um, given the track record of relative stasis, shall we say, in developing new medications? Are there um, promising at least directions in research on this? I want to back up a little bit. So in the book and in my experience researching the book, there's an excitement around being with great researchers. And if I haven't captured that, then the book fails. So to be with people who are trying to find new ways to think about the sources of, for instance, how we conceive of reality, which is, of course, so closely related to psychosis, or the sources of what makes some people resilient against depression. And that was true of, of one of the scientists I was learning from. He had gone to a conference, listened to a colleague talk about those Vietnam POWs who were not left with terrible PTSD. And he thought, well, what is it that makes some brains resilient? And I couldn't help thinking of a particular friend of mine who always seems so buoyant. And when I'm my mood is diving, like he's the last person I can be around. I just it's just like too much for me. I think lots of us have that experience. And so essentially what the scientist was asking, what is it at the level of the brain and then the level of molecules? and the level of molecular mechanisms that make some people resilient in that way. So to watch these scientists, again, looking into reality in new ways, looking into resilience in new ways, was so exciting. And each of them has creative theories, which, yes, constantly makes them think they're on the brink of something, and always, during my time with them, made me wonder, okay, are you on the brink of something? That said, I think for the most part, the place I got to was we may not be able to, we don't want to abandon that kind of research far from it, but we may not be able to count on that kind of research. I'll get to one exception in a second, but my mind right now is going to a lesson that that depression researcher gave me about the difference between the brain and any other organ in the body. So again, going back to where this conversation started, we were told from the 80s onward, let's treat our brains the way we treat any other organ. We'll balance it out. We'll get the chemistry just right. We're good to go. What he taught me was no. 
think about any other organ. I can cut out a little piece of it. I can even, in many cases, just give you one cell of it. I can give you a heart cell. It's doing, the cell is doing what the organ's doing. Heart cells pumping. You can Google this right now and watch heart cells pump. The brain is the one organ where this is just profoundly not so. It's like so many orders of magnitude different. And his point was neurons, brain cells aren't thinking. It's the combination of so many elements that's doing our thinking. And that so many is so close to infinite that we may never get to what makes us us. We may never get to the psyche. And so I'm not sure we will get to the new Eureka pharmaceutical, though we may improve on things somewhat. Now, if I may just take another minute on this, I do want to touch on the promise of psychedelics. So on the one hand, I think they've been very overhyped as all the drugs previous, going back to Thorazine, have been, including by my the newspaper I write for, the New York Times. But there is some pretty good evidence that if you combine the psychedelics with extensive therapy of a very particular type, and I've read the therapeutic manuals, and they're very specific about leading the subject to a sense of oneness, sense of connection to the larger universe, a sense of one's place in something much bigger. You know, kind of for shorthand now, just an Eastern religious approach. That that combination can really have effect. And that really intrigues me. That led me toward the end of the book to go to some spiritual places that I hadn't expected to go, but that have always been important to me, that are important to Caroline or important to my brother, and I think do point to some possibilities that may make uh, some of my more atheistic, journalistic friends a little uncomfortable, but I think are really important to talk about when we're talking about psyche. In addition to Bob, Caroline, and David, and the scientists, there are some other fascinating people in your book. Could you tell our listeners about Chaku? I'd love to. So I learned so much about Chaku. I came here from uh, southern India uh, with his immigrant parents when he was quite young. Faced, moved to Rochester, which was having its own uh, sort of racial explosions at the time, faced some real harsh discrimination. And possibly with that as a factor, uh, began hearing voices, began experiencing the deep and uncontrolled fears that psychiatry would label paranoia. Uh, tried to take his own life as a teen, wound up, you know, strapped down on a hospital bed. And I should say, as an important aside here, there's a fair amount of evidence that people in marginalized populations, particularly those who suffer a lot of discrimination, are much more prone to psychosis. 
than others. There's some really stark data out of the UK that immigrant populations there, particularly immigrants of color, uh, suffer psychosis uh, and the range of those uh, diagnoses at a rate as much as nine to one beyond uh, the you know dominant white population. So with that in mind, uh, Chaku goes on his own journey. He, his parents were wary of going the medical route. Um, and he comes to a place through various spiritual pursuits, praying multiple times a day, uh, studying uh, Hindu texts, um, comes to a place where his voices have not disappeared by any means, but he lives with them and learns from them. This is something I think mainstream psychiatry would be incredulous about, incredulous to the point of dismissive about, but learns from them, incorporates them. And when I asked if there were the perfect no side effect medication, would you take it? His answer is no. This is by now too important to who I am and too important to the way I, Chaku, can relate to other people, too important to the way I intuit the isolation, the pain that other people feel. So he's just a wonderful person. He told me this great little parable about a, see if I can get this right, a traveler to a foreign land arrives, sees a peacock, has never seen one before, and thinks, oh my gosh, this is a genetic freak. I better help it out. Cuts off all the feathers and trims the beak and paints the bird a duller, darker, grayer color. And feels very proud and thinks, wow, now you look much more like a normal guinea fowl. You'll do much better while all these gorgeous feathers are, you know, gone at the bird's feet. And Chaku learned that parable when he was coming to terms uh, with who he is. And I've always taken that as an important bit of wisdom. At, at one point in the book, your brother Bob said that he wished someone would have met him under the table. Could you talk about what he meant by that? Sure, and I'm glad you're asking because I'd forgotten. I'd love to talk about my trip to Israel, uh, a country that's more receptive than we are here in the United States to experimental approaches. So uh, in Israel, uh, I learned from a psychiatrist who'd once been very mainstream, conventional, had run a, a mainstream locked psychiatric ward for decades, uh, but who had started a much more unconventional mode of treatment. And he, Pesach Lichtenberg, taught me a rabbinic parable. And in short, I'm not going to do it justice. It goes like this Once a prince believed he was a turkey. And the prince begins to live as a turkey, and he lives under the royal dining table, just pecking on bits of bone and breadcrumbs. 
until a sage comes along and gets under the table with him and is there with him in a long and deeply meaningful way. And through that, is not quite able to persuade the prince that he's not a turkey, but is able to connect with him in a way that allows that turkey prince to kind of make his way in society. And I think that that being with under the table is what my brother was wishing he'd had. I want to um, wrap up by asking uh, if you're able to give any updates on Bob, Caroline, and David. Um, I know the book is just recently published, but I'm curious about how they're doing. So the short answer is great uh, for my brother and for Caroline, and I'm going to leave readers to learn the details. But I will say that Caroline leads a really uh, transformative movement in the world of mental health. And my brother does quite profound uh, things as well that I hope uh, readers will find as meaningful as I do. Um, For David, things have been much trickier. Those uh, withdrawal effects have lingered but I'm, of course, in regular contact with him, and he has turned a bit of a corner. So I'm really glad to report that he does seem to be emerging. But it's been a few years of a really tormenting experience. Well, Daniel, I want to thank you for uh, being with us today. I want to thank you for the book and for the light that it sheds on our minds and our natures. And I want to thank all our listeners as well. Take care, and we will see you soon on the New Books Network.